G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at reedgoosens.com. And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. I think everything becomes a lot easier once you have that first one under your belt. I mean, a lot of people are looking, has this guy closed a deal? There's a lot of people out there looking at deals that are touring a bunch of deals, but they're not putting in offers or, or you know. It, it, as much as it helped me know that the equity there, it helped the brokers know even more that the equity was there. Um, and so after that, it was it was much easier. I was getting looks at deals that were off market, and and uh, whereas before, like they said, when they say you're going to have to overpay to get your first deal, they say that for a reason. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, the pleasure of speaking with Wright Womack. Wright is the founder and CEO of Atlas Bend Properties, which focuses on value-add multifamily acquisitions in Texas. Prior to starting at Atlas Bend, Wright practiced law at Vision and Elkins uh, in their M&A group and for two years, and then followed by four years of investment banking, banking at Credit Suisse. Wright is most passionate about real estate investing when it comes to providing a great platform to test your resolve and creativity in order to maximize returns for your investors on each specific project. I'm really excited to have him on the show today um, to share his incredible story and his knowledge with us. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, right? Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Hey, Reed. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, my friend. Um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of today, and I want to preface by saying, 
Guys who are listening to this show, this episode is going to be pretty crammed with some incredible advice. Wright is very, um, he's a newbie to podcasting, so we'll give him, we'll cut him some some slack here. But we're also going to be talking about a story about how he flipped a 224 unit property in what was it, two months, right? Like less than two yeah, months? Yeah, it, uh, it was 110 days. 110 days. That's yeah. incredible. Didn't even, did, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But before we do, right, um, I ask all my guests to come on the show. Can you rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid? You know, I think it was, I think it was a lemonade stand when I was, uh, that was kind of the first outside dollar that ever came in. And then, uh, you know, doing chores and stuff like that around the house, uh, walking the dog, all that kind of stuff. But more interesting stories, probably how I spent my first dollar, but I, <laughs> I don't know if this well, is, tell me, how'd you, how'd you, how'd you spend your first dollar? I don't dollar? know if this is R rated, <laughs> but I had, you know, I came from a, a family of, of four boys. And so I had yep. two older brothers, one of whom was seven years older. And so he convinced me that, uh, a good investment, it was actually the first, I think it was the first $20 I spent was on a dirty magazine that he sold me when I was like seven years old. <laughs> and I always look back and it's like, you know, I give him grief about it, but at the same time, it's, you know, a kid that age, it's, it's money, you know, you're not going to get, you, you know, money well spent, but. That's yeah, hilarious. That's, uh, having, having, having older, uh, bad influence, yeah. uh, influential <laughs> brothers, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, but yeah, no, so it was, it was through just kind of standard stuff that, that everybody else, uh, you know, does just, just looking for things around the house and, and ways to just kind of, uh, you know, make money through, I've walked the dog and do stuff like that. So nothing, nothing too crazy. Awesome. awesome. So, so tell me about your upbringing. What you said, you were a, you're one of four boys. I'm sure your mother would be pulling her hair out uh, growing up with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was fun. We had, so my oldest brother was about seven years older than me. And then I had one who's about three years older and then one that's five years younger. Um, and so we, wow, that's a big range. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, we got into, all kinds of trouble growing up. And, uh, you know, I, I just kind of, I was the, the third kid. So I was more of the calm one who just kind of sat back and watched them do crazy stuff and just kind of tagged along. Uh, but I remember when we were, when we were growing up, we used to live at a house and my two brothers, I was probably four or five years old. Um, so they were, you know, uh, you know, call it nine and 12 or something, but the nine year old climbed up onto our neighbor's house, got a bunch of water balloons, they were out of town, started dumping them down the chimney and just completely covered the entire living room with, with black soot. Uh, and then it actually turned out that the person whose house that is, he ended up marrying that guy's stepdaughter, like, you know, 20 years or 10, you know, 15 years later or whatever. So it's, uh, grew, grew up in Midland. So it's, you know, hundred thousand people, but, but still, uh, still feels like a small world with stuff like that happening. Yeah, that's 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 very very funny. Um, tell, but I said in the beginning that you were a lawyer prior to getting involved in real estate. So walk us through the journey. You went to university, you got a degree, you then got into the corporate world. Why did you then leave it? Yeah. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about the, the the legal world and and what intrigued you to get and become a lawyer. Yeah, so I think I think my first interest in becoming a lawyer was. When I was growing up, my dad had gone to law school and then he never practiced at all. He immediately moved out to Midland, started an oil and gas company out there. And over the last 30 years or so has had, uh, I guess it's been longer than that now, 40 years, has had oil and gas companies, upstream companies, oil and gas services, and then also does real estate out there. So buy shopping centers and uh, pretty entrepreneurial guy. But when I grew up, I, I, I saw him doing that and I wanted to follow a similar path. And he had always talked about how valuable law school had been, how it given him a good, good platform to kind of go off of in the business world, and a good, good way to think about the deals. And and uh, it was a unique skill set compared to what some of the other people had that he was he was you know uh, coming into to interaction with in the business world. Um, and so I, I did so that. The, the, so the goal was never to actually go and. Law was just a means to an end. It was a stepping stone to get you to become more of a problem solver and be exposed to some industries that maybe you wouldn't have been exposed to if you didn't have that degree. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And initially, I yeah. planned to just go to law school and then immediately try to start a company after that. Uh, but at that point, I had this degree. I could go get some some even better law experience by spending another two years doing it at a, at a big corporate shop. And so I went and, and practiced uh, here in Houston doing energy law. I was always kind of, I spent probably 50, you know, I was 50, 50 between real estate and energy in college, uh, coming out of law school. That's, that's where the best jobs were and the most interesting work. 
And so I went there and I was doing M&A work. Uh, I'd say 50-50 between M&A and corporate. So I was doing IPOs, private M&A, private equity. Uh, you know, so, so that was great experience and, and told myself, yeah, I'll do this for two years. And then at that point, I'll go start a company and, and got two years in and was like, okay, like, you know, things are a lot more sophisticated than when my dad did this. I should probably try to learn finance a little better before just going out and trying to figure out what industry to go into or if a deal makes sense. I just felt like I needed a little bit more of a framework to take that legal knowledge and then apply some finance skills to it as well. And when I was making the decision of, of kind of where to go next, I was a little bit worried that if I went anywhere that wasn't just pure finance, I would eventually get pigeonholed back into a legal role. So I looked a little bit at private equity and some groups like that, but uh, you know, the people I would have been competing with on the finance side, they all were coming from investment banking. And so I'd be getting in there and, you know, maybe they let me struggle with the model for a little while or, or try to, you know, play the role of an analyst or associate for a while. But then I was just worried eventually they'd say, okay, he, you know, just too far to catch up. We got to shift them over to something more legal. And so I went into investment banking, you know, no opportunity for that to happen. It was, it was kind of uh, getting thrown into the fire. I mean, my first, first night I was there was an all nighter. It was, it was kind of crazy. It was, I joined like two months after my associate class had started and they had all just come out of business school. They'd had a couple summers of, of interning at investment banks and, and they kind of knew the ropes and normally they bring you in and you'd be like on a bunch of pitches and, and stuff. that's not meaningful work, but for some reason they put me on a live M&A deal, you know, had multiple all nighters and it was, it was, you know, some of the most painful, just the three months was, was completely painful. Like every night my wife would come downtown, like we need to eat dinner together. I'd be like, I don't know if I can continue to do this. This is like, I'm way over my head here. Uh, but after like six months or so that the experience from being on a few live deals, I'd already caught up to the rest of my class and then ended up, you know, uh, being in, in just as good of a spot just from kind of withstanding the pain for a couple of months and, and learning on the fly. It's, it's super interesting that you pivoted really early in your career. So how long were you in, involved in law before you pivoted to investment banking? So including law school, it was, it was five years, just three, five yeah, years. three okay. years law school and then two years uh, at, at Vincent Malkins. Right. So it's, it's enough to, I assume that not many people do that sort of shorter stint, right? It's two years in one degree of what's sort of one profession and then and pivoting is it's probably a little bit unheard of, right? But I think I tipped, uh, you know, tip of the hat to you because you 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 went out to something that you wanted to pursue, right? You had a goal that you wanted to, to pursue. You knew you had some maybe um, weaknesses in your skill set, and you went out and tried to fix those weaknesses by getting a job that was able to educate you on stuff that you didn't quite know just yet, and it would help you then ultimately get to the point where you are today, which is starting your own company. So maybe talk about that transition and how you got the guts to go and say, "Well, screw this, I'm going to go do it on my own." Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, uh, I would say probably two years into investment banking. I knew that I, I, you know, wanted to do real estate. I kind of looked back and forth at, at different options of what was out there and, and settled on, you know, real estate as being something that for the next 30 to 40 years, if I really learned it and, and fully dove into it, I, I would feel comfortable you know, one that I could get really good at it, something where there's not a lot of technical experience like oil and gas. Uh, you're not relying on engineers or geologists. Like you can intuitively understand real estate. Um, but then also the fact that it's, you know, it's not going anywhere. Energy, right. you know, who knows what that's going to look like in 30 years, um, it, at least for, for upstream oil and gas. I mean, could be there, could not. There's a lot of, lot of techno, technological advancement and you just, you just don't really know uh, real estate, people are always going to need it. And so that was kind of step one was saying, okay, I know this is what I want to go do. Now what's the best path to, to go do that? And at the time I was two years away from the next promotion, I was trying to save up as much money as possible. And so I thought, okay, two more bonuses, getting the next title. Like this is all kind of de-risking the, the going and doing this. Like I could jump in, but if things go wrong, it's, it's going to be tough to transition back in as an associate. And I, you know, I don't, I don't have enough runway to really give myself a full run at it. And so that was kind of the consideration there. Um, and, and then the next question was, okay, do I get to start a company myself or do I go work for somebody? Uh, which is something I, I kind of went back and forth on that for a little while. I think at the end of the day, I think what I realized is it's, it feels a lot riskier to go start a company 
But at the same time, if I go and start a company and get any type of, of good experience, if I close one deal or I underwrite a bunch of deals and set up a good process, and, and, and even if I don't get anything closed, if I ever have to go back and work for somebody, like the level that I would be coming in at is so much higher than if I just went straight in. And so that's how I was kind of thinking of it. It was like, okay, if I don't go, you know, if I'm, if I'm honest and don't take any reputational risk and, and do things the right way, worst case, I'm, I'm probably coming in at a higher level than where I would have been coming in if I, if I went straight in and said, hey, I'm an energy investment maker who wants to do real estate. Like, you know, sign me up. Where do I start? And they're like, okay, you know, bottom of the totem pole. So that's, that's a, and that's an interesting mindset to have because so many people think they have to transition and go work for someone else. But you had the balls to go and say, you know, screw this, I can go do it by myself. And if it fails, well, my backup is that I can still go work for someone else. I'd just be so much more experienced at it because I'd given it a crack. Tell me about that mindset because that wouldn't have been an easy conversation to have with your partner or your wife yeah. to say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to live, leave this well-paying job because, and I'm not going to go, I'm not going to have the stepping stone of going working for someone else. I'm just going to go straight into you know, point B or C or D. Uh, and so, so how were how how those conversations around the dinner table at night? I, I sure, I'm sure a little, uh, a little nervous or a- a- apprehension, I would say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's not for the faint of heart. Like I don't know. Look, you know, it's uh, you you learn through failure in a kind of very public setting in front of you know if you raise outside money in front of investors, and um, so I think that's good in the in the fact that it you know it makes you have tougher skin and and it's the most efficient way to learn. But when I first stepped out and did it and was having those conversations. Uh, I think the first time I mentioned it to my wife, there was an article in the Houston Business Journal about somebody doing value add apartments. And I'd already been kind of looking at it. And I was like, I was like, hey, I want to get do this. Like, I want to start a company doing this. She's like, haha, funny. You know, didn't like, did not think I was serious. I was like, no, really. And, and so like, you know, the first week or so was actually just making her realize I was serious. And then, uh, you know, I think, I think trying to present it in a way to where it's like, hey, look, there's, you know, this, these are the steps we've taken to make sure that we're not exposing ourselves to, to risks that we can't recover from. This is what I've done to go learn as much as I can. And I've got these, you know, 10 people that are anywhere from my age to 20 years older who've done it and who are talking to me about it and who can, who can be good mentors and sounding boards on things. Um, and so, it, I mean, it definitely took a while, but I had some time because I had two years, like I said, to, to really try to build out that network and to talk to her about it. And, and so it wasn't like a, you know, I came home like, yeah, hey, honey, we're, <laughs> I'm leaving investment banking and <laughs> going to a job or, you know, no visible side of income for some time. Um, but And so that, those two years, were you just focused purely on developing the network? Were you trying to do deals on the side whilst working full time? I was trying to. I was trying to do some small ones. I never, I never got any across the finish line. Um, you know, I think, I think part of it was at least at the time, my, my kind of excuse was, Oh, I'm doing this full time. These brokers aren't going to take me seriously until I go do it full time. And kind of, you know, part of it was that part of it was um, busy with work. You know, I can't, I can't get toward the deal. Like I found I was finding excuses not to do deals, mm-hmm. but my initial plan was, all right, I'm going to get one deal under my belt and then, and then go do it. Um, Got it. And so I, once I actually left and, and started doing it full time, that first deal came relatively quickly. Uh, I think it was interesting. I think it was June. So I left in March of 2018. I think I had a deal under LOI in like June or so. But it That's but fine. it was that like, you know, I had to have my feet to the fire to actually get it done. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting having that mental shift of like, well, I want to have a deal done before I can jump ship because it gives me the confidence and it gives me probably the permission to go and do it full time, right? That was a sort of, you were trying to get permission from the world or the universe or whatever the hell to say, I can do this and I can do it prior to leaving a secure day job. But it didn't work out like that and you had to back your intuition. You, you, you were, your back was against the wall. And it's, a, it's funny how things seem to fall into place when you the only option is, is to move forward and, and be successful or the only option is to move forward and get a deal done, which is coincidentally what happened to you, right? Because you had no, there was no other plan B. It was like, I don't have a cushy job to go back or a cushy job to help support this. It's like, I've you know, burnt the bridges, um, burnt, burnt the boats. I'm not going back uh, and this is going to happen. And that sort of mindset is so important when you're going out to try and be successful in this business that I think a lot of people don't back themselves enough to do, go and do that. And they get stuck up in the sort of like the, the, the excuses that you just, ex, you know, you explained, uh, I, I, I can't do it. I'm too busy at work. I, I, you know, I don't have time or I don't have the money. So um, kudos to you, dude, for, for going off and doing that. 
was the first deal that 224 unit that you flipped or was it a few deals later we get to that that point? yeah that was the third deal that was the third deal first deal was, so was did, 18 units so i did a small one to start out with which was probably the most challenging of, of any of them honestly um really yeah i mean it was you know it was, it was first deal so it was every broker will tell you oh, first deal you got to overpay you got to repay i was like all right i'm not i'm not going to do that like i'm not going to but you also have to do a good deal. Your first deal, your investors aren't going to come back. And if anybody asks you how your deals are going or what your track record is, you got to have a track record too. So I, mm -hmm. I was kind of stuck between, you know, rock and a hard place on, on those two competing factors for the first three months or so. And I looked at a lot of deals and, and this, this deal was actually one that we had passed on and we came back to it. And, and it was one of those examples of, Oh, it looks a lot better the second time. Like, I, you know, uh, this, you know, and so, and so I did the deal and we're, we actually have it under contract to sell right now or, or, you know, if it, if it closes, we're obviously going through all this crazy coronavirus stuff. Uh, but if it closes, we'll, we'll beat our projections on it. But it was, it was painful getting there. I mean, it was the second two deals were a lot easier and both were, were completely off market. The first deal was, you know, the broker said it was lightly marketed, which, you know, means he sent it to everybody that uh, he thought would buy it, but maybe not the entire universe. Uh, what, what made it so difficult? I mean, I think it, the size one, you know, 18 units is, is just tough. It's if you lose a couple units, you're all of a sudden at risk of busting loan covenants and, and the property managers you have or you have much more limited options. So we we, we went in and bought it. It was a company that had, it was an owner who had it out of California. They just hadn't put any money into it. They had Allied Orion managing it. So it was, they had like a 30 grand payroll on an 18 unit deal. Just a lot of stuff that just didn't make any sense where there was a lot of upside. But at the same time, we, you know, we went and found a property manager that we could put on there that had 300 units nearby and they had a maintenance team. And there was a lot of efficiencies there where we could completely cut out the payroll. But at the same time, like the first, week the the person who ran leasing for that company passed away and so we were wow. yeah we were and we didn't have a backup option her daughter ended up taking over the role and so for the first three or four months we were just kind of sitting there with and, and the whole to back up a little bit we took it over and it was 80 percent occupied it was a, a 2000 vintage deal over kind of midtown houston area and so our our strategy was it was this hideous yellow color uh, it, it hadn't been painted. The, the owner had all these horrible relationships with the neighbors, but the property line was so close. You had to put scaffolding on their property to be able to paint it. And so we came in, repaired that relationship, repainted it like a good looking, you know, gray, modern color, uh, got rid of payroll, put, put a property manager that was, uh, you know, where the cost structure actually made sense on the deal. Uh, and then, and then, you know, that was, that was kind of our business plan, but it, 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 I think, I think the size is tough. You know, a lot of people are saying, how do I do my first deal? I met with a, a guy who had been doing this for about 10 years before I started. And he said, don't do a small deal. He's like, don't go under hundred units. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Like, you know, cause it's all, it's scary at the same time. Cause we had to raise, even on 18 units, we raised like 1.4 of, of equity. Wow. And, and I had, okay. you know, I didn't have the money rate. Like it was, the first case testing the waters. I talked to some people, but I didn't know for sure that the money was going to be there. Um, mm. And so it's, it's a balance between you get the scale and you get good property managers and you get, you know, cheaper pricing on everything versus going and buying an 18 unit deal and you know, uh, only having very limited property managers that can work on it. If you lose a couple units, you're in a bad spot. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy decision. Looking back, if I if I'd known I could do bigger, I would have. But it's it's tough for a new investor to say, yeah, I can go buy a hundred unit deal. Well, and, and that's yeah. The, the advice for someone going back to the mindset of it and the permission and all that sort of stuff we talk about on this show a lot is like you're only as good as what you've done, right? Or you think you're only as good as what you've done. It's easy for someone who's done it to say, yeah, go and do a hundred units. It's just super easy. Just do it. You know? And once you get into that mindset of once you've done it once, you're like, oh yeah, it is actually easy. And the, the amount of work I put into an 18 unit is going to be exactly the amount of work I'm going to put into a hundred unit or 200, or 200 unit or 300 unit. But when you're at the coal face and you've never done it before, it's so overwhelming. And so I think it's, um, I think it's good that you did it because you got 
it, it, it proved to yourself that you could do it. And, and to your point, you hadn't even raised the money yet. So it was sort of like this all uh, the chicken and the egg scenario, which everyone always struggles with as a first time buyer. But you were able to prove to the, to the, to the seller that you could close. So um, kudos that you got it over the line. How did that then help you snowball into now deals two, three, and, and four and all the, and the rest of it? Yeah, I think everything becomes a lot easier once you have that first one under your belt. I mean, a lot of people are looking, has this guy closed a deal? There's a lot of people out there looking at deals that are touring a bunch of deals, but they're not putting in offers or, or you know, it, it, as much as it helped me know that the equity there, it helped the brokers know even more that the equity was there. Um, and so after that, it was it was much easier. I was getting looks at deals that were off market and, and uh, whereas before, like they said, when they say you're going to have to overpay to get your first deal, they say that for a reason. They're not just, you know, there's a, if, if multiple, did, did you overpay? Uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't think so. I, I think, I think right. it was close right. though. It wasn't like, like, you know, if we sell it where we're selling it, we're going to hit our projections. So no, but at the same time, there were, there were times when it was like, this is not, you know, super comfortable. Like we were, I was fighting and <laughs> scrapping and like trying to be creative on ways to, to make everything work. And, you know, we sourced our own buyer for the deal and, and to save on broker fees. And, and we're doing a lot of stuff to, to maximize value, but it took a lot of time and effort to get there. I mean, I mean, at one, at one point I got, this was probably two months into it. Uh, we were having some, some roof issues at the property. And for some reason they could just not figure out like what was going on. And so the only way you could do it is if you're up there when it was raining to see like where it was coming in, they could just not figure it out. And so one morning I was running with my little brother, it was Saturday morning at like 6.30 and it starts raining. And so I'm like, great, I'm going to go over there and, and check out the roof. Like I'm going to find the source of this water. And I get into the roof. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pitched roof with a flat TPO portion down the middle, which is one of the reasons why it was so hard to diagnose where water was getting in. But there's this little side door that you can go into the roof. And so I go in there, I'm feeling around. I'm like, okay, I think, you know, I think I know where it's coming through. And I turn around to go get out and the thing has, is locked. And I can't get out. It's Saturday morning at like 7 a.m. I'm like sweaty from running in workout clothes. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Stuck in a yeah, roof. Stuck in a roof. And I hear people in the, in the apartment like below me, like getting up, making breakfast. And I'm like, can't call anybody. These people are going to be like, who the hell is in my roof? And so I eventually like text the mate, you know, the our property manager and the maintenance guy comes. He like walks around, doesn't even see me. I have to text back like, hey, you just walked by. Like I'm literally in the roof, not on the roof. He comes in and finds me, and you know this guy just starts cracking up. Uh, Did you find the leak? Bob? Yeah, yeah, we found it. Yeah, we found it and got it all sorted out. I mean, part of that was just an exercise of finding the right roof contractor. So we're right, trial right. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> imagine, imagine banging from from upstairs and like, what the what <laughs> raccoon is in the roof? Yeah. Like, is, you know, two hundred pound raccoons in the roof up there. Yeah, it's crying for help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But mate, let's pivot into this the the thing that I said at the beginning of the, of the show, which was the flipping of this two hundred and twenty four unit. So, take us through maybe just the the life cycle of how this deal came to fruition. Because when I first heard it, um, when we were masterminding together, it was it was really interesting. It was a win that I think only some of us dream of. And this is not a base hit. This was a full home run on your third deal, right? Like yeah. it was maybe, maybe you talk to us, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to give the specifics because obviously there's still things going on, but we can get, we can loosely give about like how the deal came about, what you picked it up for, what you're selling it for. Um, and then you can, you know, we don't have to talk about the name of it or anything, but to keep, to keep confidentiality in check, but maybe just how did it even come about in the beginning? Was it from your leads from closing deals in the past? And, 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 like what advice do you give to people out there for, for trying to find these off market uh, leads? Yeah. So, so this was actually through a broker that I met pretty early in the process. I don't think I'd even left yet to start this, but he was, he was a guy that I, I came in contact with really randomly. I was looking at a deal on CoStar. He was selling a deal that was like way Northwest Houston. I looked at it kind of briefly, you know, he called me on it. We went and grabbed lunch. Uh, but whenever I sat down, he, he kind of had a different approach from other brokers. I mean, he was a young guy. He's like, look, I want certain contact. You know, I want to build relationships with guys and sell them deals over many years. It didn't seem like he had, I don't know what his Rolodex was at the time, but he took kind of more interest in a new guy than, than a lot of the other more established brokers probably would have. And so from that point on, I, I kept a really close relationship with him. Uh, he would send me off-market deals he was looking at. 
I tried to set up his structure to where I was, I was compensating him well to where I'd be paying him more than, than probably other buyers would be paying him if he was representing us. And, and so I had actually, when the deal came in, I'd actually just gotten to Grand Cayman and it was my wife and I we were on an anniversary trip. And for whatever reason, anytime we go on a beach trip, I will get a good off market deal. And it's, it's like a blessing and a curse. <laughs> and my wife keeps t- trying to tell me we need to go travel more. Um, but it was literally the first day it came in, I get this email and it's like, you know, Hey, I've got this deal randomly came across this guy. He's about to sell this to somebody else for 33 a door, you know, in wow. Houston. He's like, he's like, if I can find, if you can find a deal that's under 40 a door in, in, you know, core Houston inside the loop in Houston, I'll eat my shoe. And I was like, okay. Like, I, and you, you so just, just, and you knew that going, like, cause you, you grew up in Houston, you know Houston really well. Just even hearing the number of 33K a door, your light bulbs are going off in your head. Yeah. Right? You already knew the area. You already knew that it was a, you didn't even have to underwrite it cause you just knew the price was so freaking good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And especially coming from this broker, like, I knew he wouldn't be sending me a deal that was just some trash deal, but even a trash deal wouldn't, wouldn't be going for that price. Um, mm. And so it immediately piqued my interest. I, I tried to figure out a way. I mean, it was almost a blessing that I was down at the beach during this time because it, it kind of forced me to lean on other people, whereas normally I would have tried to do everything myself and, oh, I need to go tour it and I need to, you know, underwrite it. But instead it was immediately like, all right, I'm going to talk to my property manager for expenses. I'm going to talk to this person I've been partnering with to go drive it. Uh, you know, I'm going to talk to X, Y, and Z. And it helped, it helped from that perspective. But at the same time we were, I was trying to move really fast. I was, trying to not completely blow up my vacation at the same time. So I'd wake up pretty early and like, I, you know, I'd get up at 4am or something and work for a couple hours before my wife was up. And then if by the end of it, we were, we sent them an LOI, they wanted it in a contract form. So I was like, okay, great. For some reason, our attorney wasn't responding. Um, Cause I think he, he was out of the office or something. We were trying to move really, really fast. But the law background came in helpful, so I, I was able to to kind of mark up the the standard tar form, and our broker had his assistant put it all in there, and so we ended up getting the offer submitted within the next three or four days. Um, you know, and we did a fulsome underwriting and looked at comps and and all of that, but it was all kind of directed from the uh, beach. Uh, uh, what what discount was is is mid thirties a door in, in this pocket? Like, were we talking twenty percent discount compared to other comps? Like, what 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 was? How did you know like it was such a cracking, smoking hot deal right right away? So we ended up getting it for thirty eight a door. After there was back and forth, there was one other buyer involved. Couldn't really tell if it was a real buyer or if he was just trying to get us up a little bit. But end of the day, it came out at 34, 38 a door, which was 72% of market, just looking at comps. Wow. Um, yep. It's, I mean, it was just a deal that it was dripping with upside. This person had owned it for over 15 years. They only owned one property. They had you know, managed it well for, for someone that's not a professional, but they hadn't gone in and, and done anything to the units. It was completely untouched. There was a rent comp right down the street that, that, uh, was getting 350 bucks more a month. So just a very visible story. Um, there was another deal that another broker was trying to sell that was almost exactly the same, but it had flooded during Harvey and, and ours hadn't. And they were trying to sell that for 65 a door. And so there was just a lot of, a lot of good data points out there to, to go, uh, to go point to. Uh, and then I also, I also had a, a person from another shop that, uh, they buy a lot of deals in that space and I'm buddies with them. And I was like, Hey, I'm get. How about I just pay you a fee? I just want you to underwrite this as if you guys were buying it and let me know what price you get to. And he was shaking out to like high forties. Um, and hmm. so it was, you know, we, we you just, kinda, everything was all the boxes were being ticked. Right. It was just, it could, and I guess from the seller's point of view, why are they selling it so cheaply? It was just, they just wanted to get out. They had, they didn't know. They didn't know how long it took to sell a deal. And they had another deal hmm. under contract that they were trying to buy. And so they wanted us to close it. I think it was 38 days. It was wow. really, really fast. And so they, they had kind of put themselves in a, in a situation where they had to close really fast. They bought it 15 years ago. So they, you know, they bought it for much, much less than they sold it for. And so I'm sure they were like, you know, quick, easy, let us get this other deal done and not go through the whole process of, of doing a fully marketed process. 
Right. And so talk to me about how the process in your mind to say, okay, I'm not, I don't want to actually go and buy this deal and flip it and hold it for, should I say flip it in, and hold it for a period of time and then sell it in two or three or four years time. When did the thought come across your mind? I could flip this contract within, you know, less than six months just to someone else. Yeah. I mean, I think it almost initially started kind of out of necessity because since we had to close it in 39 days, none of our typical lenders were going to be able to do that. And so we had to start mm. looking at hard money options and a bunch of kind of out of the box debt sources. And so I think that was the first point where I said, okay, well, like I can find debt like this. that doesn't have any prepayment. So my main goal was to keep as much flexibility as possible. And so if I had wanted to put debt on it and go refinance it and, and put a capital structure around it to where we're going to go do a five-year value add program, I had the flexibility to do that. If I wanted to flip the contract, I had the flexibility to do that. If I wanted to close it and immediately sell it, had the flexibility to do that. So uh, basically it started as, as a necessity because we weren't able to do it the way we normally would. And then that kind of opened the door of, okay, well, we've got a lot of different options. Like let's keep as many options on the table and that'll be the way that we can maximize value. Got it. And then so the ultimate decision was to flip it, right? Yeah. Like you, you, you closed on it and did a short, not a short sale, but a you just closed and then quickly sold it on to someone yeah. else. Is that what ended up happening? Yeah. Yep. And, and we looked at one point at, at flipping the contract as well. Uh, we talked to our broker, didn't want to burn that relationship. So I said, hey, you know, are you open to us doing this? And, and the way we had it structured is we were going to have a lot of earnest money, enough to cover his fee because I was, pro- you know, we're like, hey, we're not going to, we're not going to screw you around on this. Like, you will get your fee no matter what happens. But at the same time, if you go and, and flip a deal and you don't take any risk and all that value comes to the GP, you can flip a deal at something that's say 85% of market, that person's getting a really good deal, GP's getting a good deal, everybody's, everybody's happy. Um, we, we went down that path for a little bit, but it, it, uh, I think the real problem is if I was the one buying the flipped contract, I don't want to put down a, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of hard earnest money. Like it's not going to make sense for me, but from our shoes, if they don't close on the contract flip, the contract's gone and we lose all of that, you know, the million plus of value that we've locked in. So we had talked, we talked about it, went back and forth. Like we had this unique contract drafted up that would allow them to, to basically it was set up like a PSA, but on the contract flip with hard money and, and everything like that. And last minute they backed out and their lender wasn't comfortable doing it. Uh, but, but we had, you know, in the, in the interest of keeping as many options on the table, that whole time we had an LP that we were talking to and said, Hey, look, we're trying to flip the contract. Here's how it'll work. If that happens, we're going to pay you X. And if not, we'd love for you to be our LP on the deal. And so we had right when they dropped, we were able to pick up with the LP and, and go ahead and close it. And you just did a, a typical um, hard money loan on that, or did you the LP funded the entire thing? We did a hard money loan, so we used a, a group uh, called Lima One Capital out of New York. Mm-hmm. So it was real high interest yep. rate; it was like seven and three quarters, but no prepayment penalty, and two points up front. And so, at, yep. at the end of the day, if we had decided, all right, let's hang on to this, refinance it, it was going to cost us two hundred grand or so. So you know, a thousand dollars a door to have all of that optionality, which which we thought made a lot mm. of sense. And so talk about this. So you, you go in there, you do the hard money, you close with your LP. Where are you now? Did you have people, did you have the, the same brokers stoking up BOVs and stoking up, hey, like, were you going to sell this in a period of time? Like, how long did you actually own it for before you got a seller to, to sign a, a new PSA to, to flip, to sell it on, to, to deal up, uh, to own a number three? It was about a month. So the first day, okay. first day after we closed it, we went out and, and told the person, the broker that brought it to us, he was our, our agent on the deal. So we paid his fee and we let him come in for a small piece of the GP at the same time. And so we mm-hmm. told him, Hey, there's, there's kind of a conflict here. You know, we've got an LP, like we're going to go look to another group to sell this. He was, he was perfectly fine with that. Um, and so we immediately got BOVs from three or four groups, uh, went with the one who we felt like, had sold a lot of deals in that specific submarket, but they also had a couple other deals that they were trying to sell that were very similar. Sellers were holding out for too much that they kind of had buyers just sitting there waiting for a deal. And so it, it took probably two weeks to identify the buyer and then another week or two to, to get it under PSA. And then we ended up closing, you know, we, we closed on it when we purchased it in July, 
had it under contract in August and then closed on the flip in November, beginning of November. That's great. That's so good. And 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 you, you picked it up for high high thirties a door. You don't have to be specific on the number. What just what you sell it for? Uh, um, mid mid fifties. Wow, that's great. So like like a what a fifteen twenty percent increase just on a pure price per door um, valuation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like a it was a one nine or one nine x on the on the project. Wow, over and that's one nine x on a less than six month deal. Yeah, yeah, about <laughs> no, four months. Like. Yeah, four months. That's incredible. That's super. That's that's really really incredible. I guess what's what was the biggest takeaway from from doing that deal? Um, because because again, and just just to, just to for the listeners to fathom this, these types of deals don't come around all that often. Andrew and I lost out on one. Not not as not as juicy as that, but pretty similar. It was in the seventy k's a, a door, and and things were trading at eighty to ninety k a door. And we only had to put five k into it. And anyway, won't get into it. It's now being sold today. Um, it's called the high key uh, down in San Antonio, but. It's just I want to make sure people understand how this is a home run that in the world, particularly this is pre-corona, that things were hot as Hades in terms of pricing that you're able to do this. So that was it's pretty well done first and foremost, Thanks. and on such a large deal, it's 200, 200, 200 plus units. So it's not a it's not a small flip. It's not like flipping fifty units. So um, so so what was the number one thing that you took out of the whole process? I mean, I think one. You know, probably the, probably the biggest thing is just maintain flexibility as much as you can. So the more options you can keep on the table, the more opportunities you're going to have to to go create value. And so the key linchpin of the whole deal was that debt that we had that didn't have any prepayment because it allowed us to look at three different avenues and, and kind of play each one and set things up to where if one didn't work, we knew we had everything set up for the second to work. And if, if the contract flip hadn't worked, we would have had things set up to go refinance it and hold it for five or 10 years or however long we wanted to go hold it for. And so I, th- I think mm-hmm. that was key. Um, I, th- I think putting yourself in, in other people's shoes and really trying to get a, get a sense of what they're thinking is, is another important thing. Cause we, we set up the, the structure between the LP and us in a way that was, it was a little bit unique to where we were looking out and people were offering us, you know, mid forties, a door to flip on the contract. We said, wow, that's X amount of value to us, you know, and, and the LP was aware of that. So we were able to structure it in a way to where we, we eventually had, once they hit certain return thresholds, we said, Hey, we think the market's here. We're willing to give up more on the front end, but eventually we want to catch up and, and have a, a catch up to 50, 50. If we get home run grand slam, you know, all the way there. And, and, and I think we came about that through sitting in our, their shoes and saying, okay, well, what would an LP need here? Like this is a unique deal, and and what risk are they taking on? And yeah. was this LP someone that you you knew from before, or had any experience doing deals? Yeah, with? because that, that's another thing. When you hadn't done a lot of deals at this point, getting comfortable with an operator like yourself, uh, new to the game, that would be hard. That'd be a hard thing to get over the line as well. Yeah, yeah, we we knew them well, and they were familiar with us. Um, Got it. And so we had already. Got it. Thankfully, it wasn't going out and trying to. It would have been harder to do with someone we didn't know. I, I think you know people would would. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it took a lot of trust in us that we actually knew where the market was and what we could flip it for. And I think that's key. Knowing where the market is, having optionality on the flexible exits um, to keeping your options open to the, and, and not giving up on the other options. I think that's the other thing. Like you got one done and not just like, oh, let's just get it closed and we'll figure it out after closing. Keeping the other um, paths or the other options going in sequence uh, or in parallel with that, with the actual main closing process, because you, you then could either flick the switch and have either one of them work, um, because you, you, you'd vetted them out to their max. You didn't just say, "Oh, there's an option out there. I know I can do it," but you know, you didn't go and talk to a lender. You didn't go talk to um, this option. If you had to hold it for another five years, like who's going to come and replace the the hard money loan at a period of time? So, I think it's uh, kudos to you, man, in terms of all the different. Uh, spinning plates and keeping them all going at the same time. So, yeah, and, so, and, so really, really well done. And one, one point along those same lines is I think that was key in order for us to have negotiating power, because if we had ever mm-hmm. said, okay, you know, we're going to flip this contract. All right, let's go. We would have, we would have had no bargaining power. They could have come back mm-hmm. and said, all right, we'll, we'll buy it for 39 a door because you have, there's not, you don't, you can't do anything. The contract's gone right. in two weeks. Like it's gone yeah, what are you, yep. you going to do? Yep. Like, so we, yep. it was absolutely necessary to make, sh- to, to guarantee that we had other options. Cause then there were times when we got on, on calls and we were with lawyers and attorneys on their side were said, no, we can't do it with X amount of hard money. 
you know, sorry, that's crazy. And we'd say, well, we can't do it either because we're risking all of this value too. So like, okay, like let's part ways and we're fine with that. And, and being able to say mm -hmm. that it, it kept them engaged for a long time. Uh, whereas I think if, if they had known that we didn't have any other options, they could have completely dictated the terms. We would have, we would have just had to, you know, we wouldn't have had any, any options or bargaining power. I think just summarizing there, it's, it's making sure you're buying right, which you knew immediately because of your experience and you're sitting on a beach with your wife, knowing that mid-30s a door was like, this is a smoking deal. Like you already knew that there was something there before you'd even cracked open the financials. Having optionality and then not, I think, losing focus of what what your goals were because people in this early stage in their career could be, could potentially be blinded by quick cash, like flipping a contract and then lose sight of everything else understanding the downside that they could just go around you and you could lose your hard money um, because once they found out who the seller was and they go, well, instead of 38K a door, we'll buy it at 30, 38.5K a door and you lose that contract, you lose that hard money and you lose everything that you had worked hard to get to this closing table. So four or five really important takeaway key pieces of information in that transaction that has helped you get it over the line, um, not made a bunch of people a bunch of money, made yourself a bunch of money and uh, proved that you you can do it. So so really well done, mate. Awesome stuff. Thanks. Mate, I know we're getting to the end of the show here. So at the end of the show, we like to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to do it? Yeah, let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I try to wake up early and, and just have a, a consistent routine every morning. Uh, and so I'll, I'll typically wake up around five and spend an hour just, you know, the first 10 minutes or so will be meditating and journaling and just kind of trying to get my priorities for the day set. Uh, so I think that's been really helpful. It's, it's a good way to, to make sure you're up early, getting things done and, and uh, you know, routinely looking at where you're going and, and making sure you have a thoughtful plan for each day and, and it aligns with, with your longer term goals and values. How long have you been doing that for? I've been doing that for probably six months or so. Yep, it's been powerful. Right? Yeah. Awesome. Question number two, who is the most influential person in your career to date? Um, I would say there, there's, a, there's a guy named Murray Bowden who's, who's down here in Houston. Uh, he started a company called Hanover. And I start, yep. started meeting with him pretty early on when I started doing this. And he's just, I think he's a really fascinating guy. He's built up an incredible company and, and he's not one to shy away from telling you about like where he struggled early. So anytime I'll, you know, if I was going through a tough time on that first deal or, or anything, he, he just has like very good, like astute advice where he was like, you know, I would, I was like, he'd tell me about deals he struggled with and be like, oh, well, I went running at lunch every single day. Like that was how I worked through and he was doing a lot of this like back in the 80s in Houston when things were just absolutely horrible. Uh, and, and so you're like, yeah, you know, you just got to sometimes you'll sit there and just beat your head against the wall and, and want to fix something that just is not capable of being fixed that day. Just do what you can that day and, and be content with that. Like, don't try to force things. Some things just take time. Just do what you can each day to progress that. And I think he's been been really, really helpful. That's awesome. Uh, in your business, what is the most influential tool? And when I say tool, it could be a physical tool like a phone or a person, or it could be a software. So what's the number one tool you use on a daily basis in your business today? I'd say Excel. I mean, just, you know, that's probably yeah. a lot of people's answers, but I think when- No, it's not actually. It's not actually not, you'd be surprised, but yeah, Excel. Yeah. It's a, how often do you use it? Uh, I mean, pretty much every day. I mean, a lot of times we've got, we've got people who help on underwriting now and stuff like that, but- I think just one of the, it, probably a little bit of PTSD from doing investment banking is it's just, I just think well in Excel. Like even if it's just mm. trying to pencil out random stuff, I, I think it's, I think it's really helpful. It's like, it's, it's a notepad and a calculator at the same time. Yeah. So it sort of does everything at once. Right. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm the same way. I'm, I, oh man, I need to calculate something real quick. I'll just bust open an Excel spreadsheet and quickly knock out a little table. Okay. That makes me feel good. All right. Save it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Move on to the next thing. Yeah. So, um, question number four, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career to date? And what did you learn from that failure? Uh, not trusting my gut. I, th I think, mm -hmm. and it's, and it's end up fine, but I think on, on the first deal, there were things that in the first couple of months I was like, you know, oh, I kind of, I kind of thought there may be a roof issue because I saw paint here or whatever, things like that that I would, I would kind of have a gut instinct about, but it was my first deal, 
And in the first deal, I got an engineering firm to do a PCA just for me. So it wasn't for the lender, just for me. This lady was walking the deal with us. And she's like, no, it's fine because X, Y, and Z. And there were things that I was, I just like had a little bit of a gut feeling that I was like, this doesn't feel right, but I don't know. You know, I'm like first time guy doing this. Like she knows she's done this for 40 years, you know, however long. So I would just, even if somebody has more expertise than you, I, I would always trust your gut. If you're getting that funny feeling or, you know, just, just always trust your gut instinct. Love it. I think it's super important, particularly when you are struggling with that newbie syndrome of like, yeah, maybe this person doesn't know what they're talking about and they've been doing it for 40 years. Like it's interesting that it can come some, sometimes come back to bite you, but, um, but really awesome stuff. Mate, last question. Where can people go to, 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 to learn a little bit more about what you do, be in your circle? Where do they, how do they get in contact? Uh, get our website, atlasbinproperties.com. We've got a, a contact us link there. Uh, which, which I, you know, we check. And so just uh, contact us through there. Well, mate, I want to thank you for jumping on the show today, just to reflect some, some of the things that I took away from today's conversation. I think your ability to assess a situation or assess a target in the future and know how to go about achieving it. And sort of you're pivoting from, from doing a law degree to becoming a professional lawyer for a couple of years to then pivoting into investment banking to then pivoting to doing your own business without actually thinking you needed to go get a stepping stone of learning from someone else and sort of more of a trial by fire type of approach, I think is really ballsy and, and awesome and something that uh, not many people have. So uh, I think that's, that's really, really incredible. And then on the deal side, that, that deal we spoke about, the flipping, making sure that all your options were still there. You had optionality throughout the entire process. You didn't give up control and you made sure that you closed the back end and made sure you, there wasn't any risk to you or your hard money. So I think all those, so many nuggets of information in today's episode. Um, mate, did I leave anything out? I don't think so. I don't think so. Thanks for having well, me on. Well, mate, no, as I said, thank you for jumping on. Um, enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. All right, Reed. Thanks. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Wright. If you do want to find out any more about what Wright does, get over to his website at atlasbendproperties.com or search Atlas Bend Properties in Google and make sure you reach out to him and contact him if you have any questions about today's show because he is full of knowledge when it comes to doing these deals given his experience um, in so many different facets of the real estate investment world. But I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show and we'll do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack.